This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Why, hello, everyone. Hello. Hey. My name is Van Battam. I'm a columnist for Guardian Australia, and I have the very great honour of presenting to you I Was a Human Guinea Pig, an extraordinary session about the mind, physiology, the nature of personality, and the electromagnetic physiology of the brain. Before we start, I'd like to make the most important acknowledgement that today I stand on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. As someone visiting from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, I pay my respects to Elders past and present. This is a land stolen, never ceded. And if any of you do see Andrew Bolt wandering the halls, feel free to pass this information on. <laughs> incredible guest today is John Elder Robeson. John Elder Robeson is a New York Times best-selling author. He's also a person who's lived his entire life with autism. The nature of our talk today is about him undergoing the TMS treatment, which strapped magnets to his brain in order to challenge his autism and reconfigure the very electoral wiring of who he is. In a life that has seen him as the neurodiversity scholar in residence at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, advising the US government, Department of Human and Health Services on their autism strategy and policy, and my personal favourite detail, designing the firecracker rocket launcher used in the guitars of the greatest rock band ever, KISS. <laughs> And it is so great that we have KISS fans in the audience today. We have an incredible, incredible session ahead of us. Now, John has told me that he loves free, open discussion, and I certainly encourage you to formulate as many questions as possibly come into your minds over this session. The moment that John walks over to join me in those chairs there is your cue to run down to the microphones on either side of the audience and let the conversation flow free. We do encourage you to keep your mobile phones on because we love to know what you think of our talks and to share the information of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas across the miraculous interwebs by tweeting hashtag FODI and recording what you see here today. We do add the caveat that we'd rather like your mobile phones to be switched to silent. Can everybody just take a moment to not only do that, but to lower the brightness of the screen right down to the very lowest level. Everybody's on board? Tweeters in the audience, give yourselves a big clap. And please welcome to the stage the extraordinary John Elder Robeson. Well, thank you for, uh, for having me down here to see you one more time. It's really a, a great honour to come to Australia and to be able to speak at your opera house. It's a really, really cool thing. And uh, I guess it's all made possible by being autistic and being different. If I hadn't had been that kid who took up an interest in in music and electronics. That was the thing that led me to join a rock and roll band and joining rock and roll bands led me to KISS and being the engineer for KISS sent my sound equipment down here when I was 22 years old. So that was um, the first time my equipment came to, to entertain Australians and then when I was 50-some years old, after I started writing, I, I got to follow, and, and here I am. So, you, uh, you heard that uh, I'm the neurodiversity scholar at William & Mary, and some people wonder what, what that means. Uh, what it means is that neurodiversity is really the civil rights initiative of this century and this decade. Um, in the last century, we saw racial equality, we saw women's rights, we saw religious and sexual freedom, we saw recognition of all sorts of groups. But through that, nobody recognized people who were neurologically different. Some of us 
can't speak in the way you expect. Uh, others like me don't respond in the way you expect. Maybe I do respond in the way you expect because maybe most of you are autistic or maybe some number of you are, but, but the general public um, has often rejected us. And you know, after a lifetime of that, I've realized it's wrong. We deserve better than that. We shouldn't be rejected. Rejecting a person because they don't sound the way you like or expect is no different from rejecting a person because you don't like the look of black people or aboriginal people or any other, or any other thing. It's an ugly, hateful thing. And it's something I've started to speak out really strongly against. It's really, um, it's a funny thing because I started off in this quest for neurological equality. Um, I started off thinking that one thing that sets us autistic people apart is that we truly do have deficits dealing with society. If you put an autistic person and a non-autistic person, for example, behind a cash register in the store, maybe the autistic person would say something inappropriate to a customer that a non-autistic person wouldn't. And, and so I thought, well, maybe people are right to discriminate us against us in certain job situations. Maybe we can't do those kinds of jobs as well. And you know what I learned from my students at William & Mary? I learned that that's exactly the same kind of thinking that in America facilitated the oppression of black people for hundreds of years. Because if we go back to 1955, we could find scientific articles that said that black people aren't as smart and they can't do math. And for that reason, black people aren't as good being cashiers in stores as white people. And so I listened to what they said and, and I read those things myself and I realized that's true. Maybe it is that we can't do as well standing behind a cash register in some situations. But there are other situations where we excel. If there weren't situations where we excelled, I would never have been able to be a star engineer in music and all the other autistic people that have accomplished so much for the world. We couldn't have done any of that if we didn't excel. So clearly, even if we are disabled in some ways, we are exceptional in others. And I think society has a duty to recognize that. So I've started to speak out really strongly for that. And then I wrote this book, Switched On. And it's a tale of me participating in a series of experiments at Harvard Medical School where they fired high-powered magnetic pulses into my head in an effort to change my ability to see emotional cues in other people. Some people, knowing of my strong neurodiversity advocacy and my strong advocacy for acceptance and equality of all people who behave and look different because of our neurology, they thought, why on earth would you do that if you are such a belief, believer in acceptance as we are? And the answer is, is simple. It's one thing to believe in our right to acceptance as we are, and it's another to want to be the best we can be. Nobody would say I was wrong if I, want, if I said that everyone has a right to be accepted socially, whether they're, they're thin or fat or how we look. But I'm kind of fat and sluggish and chubby and I'd like to be in better shape. I'd like to go exercise. I'd like to run marathons. I'd like to be able to do those things. No one would hold that against me. So why is it that people are skeptical that I would want to make myself the best person I could be with respect to reading emotions in other people and communicating? 
You know, I talk a lot about the gifts that autistic people bring to the world. And the reason I do that is that I've got a lifetime of being told what a piece of shit I am and how worthless people like me are. And I believe that it's time for someone to speak out and say, no, that's not true. That's ugly, mean talk. It's not true. And I need to stand proudly and be an example to say, yes, I can do these things and other autistic people can do things. But that doesn't mean that I haven't felt the sting and pain of that rejection all my life. And, and I recognize now that I have knowledge of autism in middle age, that very often I and other autistic people, we lose our chance to make friends with people and we lose our opportunity to show them how kind and sweet and gentle and loving we can be simply because when we first meet them, we say or do something that they think is inappropriate. Or even more often, we don't do something that they expect us to do. I can't tell you how many times I have, I've met someone and maybe they're really worried, maybe, maybe their child is sick or there's something going on in their life and they're all stressed and they, they say something to me and, and I say, well, we gotta hurry up, we gotta, we gotta get down here and we gotta, we gotta go now. And, and the other person looks at me and they think, well, what a cold, callous son of a bitch he is. He doesn't care about me at all. And you know, that couldn't be farther from the truth. I, I could care about her very much and I, I could have wanted all day to meet her and have a chance to talk. But because I couldn't receive her message of pain and fear and worry, I couldn't respond in the way she expected me to respond. And if she was someone who didn't know me, she'd be very likely to reject me. So I knew all that by the time I was 50 years old, but I didn't know what to do about it. Learning about autism when I was 40, thanks to Tony Atwood's book, that really changed my life. Learning how I didn't respond to social cues, that informed me, but it didn't tell me how to respond to them. The thing is, when I learned about autism, I learned what kind of responses are expected that I might not do, but nothing in a book could teach me how to look at a person that I'd never seen before and read in their face that they were worried or scared or they had a message that they wanted me to get. And so, I felt that that was a real point of disability in me. And I guess I devised this foolish fantasy. I thought to myself, people have told me how worthless I am all my life because I don't, I don't act right. And I'm a sociopath and I'm stupid and I'm lazy and I'm all kinds of bad stuff. And I had no problem internalizing all those ugly bad messages. What I never got were the other kind of messages. I never got the messages that were beautiful and sweet and light and loving. And I thought to myself when I learned about autism, well, that's because I can't read the signals in other people's eyes and in their faces. If only I could read those signals, I could read those messages of love and joy and light and happiness, and I would be a person who would feel those things because for most of my life, I've never felt those things. And, and you know, that is the hard, hard thing about this autism, because as much as I celebrate our accomplishments, I recognize that our social disabilities cause us a great deal of pain. And you might say, well, how can you speak for anyone other than yourself? Maybe they cause you pain, they don't cause me pain. Maybe so. I can't say. 
that social disability causes any specific person pain. But what I can say is that autistic people my age, we kill ourselves nine times as often as the general public. Isn't that kind of shocking? And why would we do that if it weren't for the pain of isolation and social pain? You know, that's a really, really hard thing. So these scientists came to one of my talks, and one of them said to me, that they wanted to try these experiments called transcranial magnetic stimulation, and they were looking for autistic adults to volunteer. And they hoped that by firing electromagnetic energy into what's called Broca's area, which is thought of as the center or one of the centers of language in our brains, they thought that they might be able to improve my ability to read emotions in other people. And you know, I signed up immediately. I thought, that's the very thing that I've been weak in all my life. And I go to the hospital, you know, and they do brain scans and do all these tests and they, they establish a baseline where they put me in front of a computer and they have me push buttons to say if the figures I see on the computer screen are happy or sad or jealous or whatever. And I would see these figures go by and I had no clue what their facial expressions were. And it made me really sad to do their tests because I thought, I don't have any idea what these expressions are. Maybe I'm going to be too dumb for the test and I'm going to wash out before it even starts. But they assured me that wasn't the case. And, and finally, the day comes for the first stimulation. And, um, and the way they do it, I sit in a chair and they hold this TMS coil up to my head. It's a coil the size of a pack of cigarettes. And uh, they have these cameras that are looking at my head and, and there's some balls, or some things on the TMS coil so the cameras can see where it is, and they had mapped where to hold the coil on my head very precisely with brain imaging studies. So they held it up there, and they pushed the button, and once a second, the coil popped, and it sent a pulse of energy into that part of my brain. So I had done the, the face test before, looking at faces and not recognizing them, and the TMS started. And I thought to myself, nothing's happening. There was a click every second and a pop. And I realized I couldn't keep a thought in my head. I thought I'm gonna count the pulses. And I counted one, two, three, four. And then I lost track. I realized somehow that machine was kind of putting my mind in neutral. And I sat there and then all of a sudden, there was like a blink, and the machine went off, and 30 minutes had passed. And, um, and they said, hurry now. We're going to have to test you just after the TMS ended while the stimulation is still strong in your head. So they hurried me over, and they sat me down at the computer, and they had me look at those faces again, and I still didn't have any idea what they were. I had no idea what emotions I was seeing. And I thought, what kind of a stupid fool was I that I signed up for this and I thought they were going to hold a coil up to my head and it was going to make me different. I'm the same guy I always was. And so they kept me there for another hour or so, make sure nothing happened to me, and they sent me on my way. And, um, and I got in the car to drive home. And in my car, I would play music. I'd play old recordings from the 70s and 80s of bands I worked with, and um, I turned on the iPod, it was back before they had iPhones, and um, I turned it on and um, it was like stepping into a hallucination. It was the most extraordinary experience. When the music started to play, it's like I was no longer in my car driving down the turnpike for the two-hour ride to get home. The music was so real and so alive 
that it was like I was back in a Boston nightclub in 1980. And I could, I could see the singers and I could see the musicians and I could hear every little detail. And, and you know the thing that's most remarkable? The thing that's most remarkable is I could feel the emotion in the performers. All my life, I had been a successful rock and roll engineer because I could deliver beautiful music. And to me, beautiful music was music that wasn't distorted. It was equalized properly. It didn't echo. You could understand it. I took great pride in being able to deliver Barry Manilow one day and kiss the next. And I thought, I did a really good job. If I could make a sound system do such a thing as that. But you know what? I never, I never felt the music that I delivered to people. I just could feel that it wasn't distorted and I did it right. And that night, after I drove out of the TMS lab, I could feel the emotion of the singers on the stage. And suddenly I realized they weren't just singing words, they were singing words about real people. And they were songs of love and, and sorrow and happiness and sadness. And, and I could feel it and it made me cry and I cried all the way home. And I wrote the scientist that night and I said, that's some powerful mojo you've got in that machine. <laughs> and, and, and I kept going. And I began to see emotion in all these places. Some of you have read my first book, Look Me in the Eye, right? And, and in Look Me in the Eye, I wrote about how sometimes I would, I'd be talking to somebody and they would, there would be a piece of news on the radio, a bus crashed into a gorge in Peru and 20 people were killed. And, and the person would be all upset and I was very cynical about that. I thought, they must just be making a play for attention. What can they know about people on a bus in Peru? They don't care about them. But you know what? Now, I can't watch movies or the news on TV because now I see those stories and they, they can make me cry. And it's six years since the last TMS session, and that's still true. I can't go to a movie, I can't watch news, I can't watch anything like that. You know, 10 years ago, I could go to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or any gory movie you could imagine, and it wouldn't bother me at all. I could, I could sit through a movie like that eating hamburgers and popcorn. <laughs> but today, today I can't do it. Even, even things like love stories, they're they're overwhelming to me. Now I, I pick up this emotion in these things and I'm overwhelmed. And I look at that and I think, what an extraordinary power. But I don't want you to think that this is a story where I just went into a lab and I got changed and now I'm not all better. I wasn't all better at all. I thought that if only I could see these feelings in people, I'd see all this love and happiness and all. That's not what I saw at all. What I saw was a world of jealousy and trickery and sadness and angst. And I realized again, what kind of a fool was I? Because of course, anyone who picks up a newspaper, you know, it's full of bad news. The world is full of bad, sad, and angsty stuff. And you know, when I started to receive all those messages, it was devastating for me. It put me into a depression such as I have never known before, and it drove me to the brink of suicide. So anyone who thinks that like me, they were blind to the emotional cues of other people, and you want to turn that ability on and you're autistic, I say think really carefully about what you're going to get because that TMS showed me 
that being autistic for me for all my life was a protective shield against all this ugliness and badness out there in the world. I never saw it before. And after TMS, I saw it everywhere. And my marriage fell apart. My work fell apart. And I lost so many of my friends because I thought they weren't really my friends. They were mocking me. They were making fun of me. There's some stuff I think that maybe we're better off not knowing. But then I say that and I think, well, no, that's not true. Knowledge is always empowering. If someone's not your friend, you should know it. But boy, it hurts to know that. And so, so I look at what was accomplished and I think it was an incredibly powerful experience. It was one of the most powerful things that's ever happened to me in my life. And it's left me changed even now. And you know, now six years down the road, I have put my life back together. I've remarried, I've rebuilt my career. And TMS has allowed me to do things that I could not have done. Being exposed to that truly changed my ability to engage people that didn't know me. I don't know without TMS if it would have been possible for me to come down here to Australia and talk to you. Sometimes people ask, how could an autistic guy like you get up on stage and talk to us? And I think that's, that's part of the answer. And so I think that if you're someone who feels so much pain in your life as I did from loneliness, because that hurt, that hurt me more than I could say, TMS could be a godsend for you, but it could be a killer too if it just sends you into depression. And I don't know how we would know the answer. But I think that there's a more important piece to the story, and that is, just think about what happened. I sat in a chair, and these scientists held a coil up to my head. <coughs> Excuse me. And they turned on pathways inside my head that have been locked away from me all my life. And in the blink of an eye, they made me different. And just imagine that if they could do that for me as an autistic guy, what about your child with epilepsy? What if they could use TMS and they could suppress the things that starts the seizures? That's not life-changing, that's life-saving. What about your husband with an addiction? What if TMS could suppress the craving in his brain? What about you with anxiety and depression? Right now, there are TMS centers all over Australia treating depression, and many of them get better results than people get with medication. We have only begun to scratch the surface with what brain stimulation can do, and yet no one hears about it because there's no drug. There's no $100 or $200 or $500 a month prescription that you've got to refill, and because of that, there's no multi-million dollar pharmaceutical company ad campaign to make you aware of it. But it's really, it's a remarkable thing. It's a powerful thing. And it's a thing that if you think about what happened to me, turning on an ability to read emotional cues in other people, what they did in that is they raised my emotional intelligence. So we now hold in our hands the possibility that we can change human intelligence through technologies like brain stimulation. And in fact, right now in the United States, there is a study that uses TMS, stimulating another part of the brain, to actually raise functional intelligence in certain people with intellectual disability. That's a powerful concept. But where is it going to stop? Few people would argue with trying to relieve intellectual disability. 
For some of us, being able to see emotions, as I say, some of us might want it more than anything, some of us might turn and run. What of the parents who are going to look at this technology and they're going to say, I'm going to do that for my child? Does the child have a say in it? I certainly don't think this is something we should be doing to children. I think this is something that if you want to go into this, you go into with your eyes open as an adult. But there are going to be plenty of people who feel differently. We're seeing really the dawn of a new era with brain stimulation where we can really change things that were formerly untouchable. Switched on is the first story of transformative change through brain stimulation, and it happens to be a story of transformative change in an autistic person. But I suggest to you that there are going to be many, many stories in the future. There's potential for enormous good for this, but there's potential for pain and suffering and things we don't expect. I think it's something that has a lot of promise, but it's something that requires a lot of caution and a lot of study. And I hope that you'll join me in supporting the idea that we need to move science forward to make all our lives better. But at the same time, whether we use these tools should be up to us as individuals. It should not be thrust upon us. And I hope that you can see that even as I work as hard as I can for equality and acceptance of autistic people, some of us autistic people might want to make ourselves the best we can be and others will want to just be as we are and we should accept both. It's a lot to think about this new book of mine. It's, it's the hardest book I ever really tried to write to get across all these ideas and I hope when you pick it up you'll, you'll get a sense of that because it's really, uh, it's a future that's coming for us. So thank you for having me here and, and listening to me and I hope that you'll have some interesting questions. I guess I gotta go over here, right, for questions? All right, so thank you. Yeah. That was wonderful. <clears throat> and, uh, <coughs> He's amazing. Uh, and I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Switched On is such an incredible read. And John, one of the things I really love about this book is that these moments of intense emotional awareness that occur in it, and especially when you're revisiting some really painful memories in retrospect, there's a, there's a scene of a car accident which is really devastating. It, it, it's juxtaposed with these brilliant technical analyses of what's going on and it's such a great read because it goes between these sort of extremes of emotional engagement and these just incredibly dispassionate moments of, of great technical writing. So thank you so much for this. And by the way everybody, of course you can buy this book here. John will be uh, signing copies in the foyer after the talk today. So I don't even know where to start. Like, I'm completely overwhelmed. And in that very stirring address, like, there are very important questions about uh, disability, about people with disabilities, about acceptance, about inclusion, and about refusal and agency as well. And hearing your story, and, and particularly hearing the speculation about uh, treatment and the way that's applied to children, it's, it, it's very difficult to not be reminded of uh, the phenomenon of the lobotomy epidemic in the United States of America, where and, until I think even the 1960s, there were still you know, these doctors going around. There was a guy who drove a lobotomy van, yeah. and he would lobotomise your 11-year-old child if they were a bit stroppy. And certainly what we understand of, of science, and particularly around the very delicate conversation we have, a social conversation about the brain and about capacity capacity and inclusion and normality, there's always that opportunity for manipulation. Like, uh, uh, now that you have this altered state of your own mind, does your uh, emotional instinct encourage you to think positively or, or more negatively about the brave new world ahead? I feel very positive because I think that what was done with me, as big a deal as it was for me in my life, I think it's going to pale in comparison with what we're going to achieve tomorrow. I cited epilepsy as an example, and I think that's 
That's real and it's on the horizon. We are going to see brain stimulation technology used not just to change lives through reducing depression, anxiety, social blindness. We're going to see it saving lives through things like epilepsy treatment. And, um, and I think that we've only scratched the surface for that. So yes, I feel very positive about it. The reason that I am so cautious in advising parents is really just because of my own life. I know how miserable and sad and alone I was as a little boy and how much I hurt when people told me I was retarded and stupid and they didn't want to play with me. But you know what? If I hadn't been alone, I would not have spent all those hours in the engineering labs teaching myself about electronics. If I could have been that popular boy on the swim team, I would have done that in a heartbeat. Any of us would, but I couldn't because I wasn't him. So instead, I studied electronics and where other young people spent thousands of hours playing and making friends and hanging out, I spent thousands of hours becoming an expert engineer. And by the time I was 18 years old, I knew more about my area of interest than most graduate students, not because I was smarter, but because I had studied harder. Now I realize that being isolated combined with my autistic concentration, so many autistic people, children in particular, have an extraordinary ability to focus. And you parents, you say, well, he won't mind me. He won't do what I say. All he wants to do is study this or that thing that he's interested in. And in my case, that thing was electronics. And you know, that combination made me free. So, and it made me a success. If I had been treated with TMS when I was 10 years old, do you think I'd be here to talk to you today? Probably not. So I think we have to be very careful. I think that there may be some amount of pain that goes hand in hand with creativity and maybe we can't, maybe we can't have a life that's free of pain and discomfort. We can just have a good life. And, and I think that I've done okay. And I would ask you to look at other children like me and, and think, well, can you really know how your child's gonna be in 20 years? And if you don't know what your child's gonna be in 20 years, maybe it's not so smart to be applying therapies that'll radically change how he develops. But if you're a 30-year-old man and you say, I've never had a girlfriend, I've never been able to get a job, I've never been able to have friends, and if only I could do something like this to have that, would you be a candidate for TMS? Absolutely you would. And you should be able to go into it with your eyes open. But I definitely do not think it should be forced on people. And I'm positive about the outcome, but in, cautious. In terms of these questions around you know, enhancement and this opportunity for us to be the best that we can be, and I asked this question in the context of you advising a government department in the United States, um, the uh, Health and Human Services Department, and looking at health strategies. Now, as Australians who look at the health system in the United States and see a lot of inequality, and Australians who here seem to be fighting a constant battle to maintain universal health care and you know, egalitarianism at the basis of health policy, what does, where does treatment fit into uh, other forms of of disadvantage and exclusion. I mean, is there a potential future where treatment is something that you can buy into? Like if you're a privileged class, you know, you have the opportunity of great enhancement, but if you're a disadvantaged class, you don't. Is well, this a, I, a new problem or are we just repeating very old ones? Well, first of all, since she has mentioned my advising the US government, um, I do serve on the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee for our government. We produce the strategic plan for autism for the United States, which guides our U.S. Department of uh, Health and Human Service, our Department of Education, our Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and our Department of our National Institutes of Health. But the opinions that I express here today are my personal opinions. <laughs> they are not 
the official thoughts and policies of the U.S. government. So bear in mind, I'm not here speaking for the government. I'm here speaking as an autistic individual. Um, now, I am really bothered by the idea of exclusion in treatment. Um, and I do think that we have a duty as a progressive society to develop and deploy treatments and therapies that will help all kinds of autistic people. That means that I believe we have a duty to develop communication devices, such as things that are based on iPads that allow people who can't speak to use symbolic communication and speak with others. I believe that we have a duty to develop therapies that help teenagers make friends and be able to go out and engage folks in the world. I believe that we have a duty to develop therapies that can help autistic people who suffer from gluten intolerance, intestinal pain. I believe we have a duty to help autistics who have sleep disorders and who are crippled by anxiety. Absolutely. We need many, many different kinds of help. And this may be just one of those things. And you know what bothers me really a lot in the United States? Right now, that TMS machine is a $50,000 tool. That machine can treat a dozen people a day, if not more. It can run seven, it could treat more if it ran seven days a week, 24 hours a day, like an MRI machine. The machine will probably last 10 years or more. And they're charging 300 bucks a treatment in the United States for that. And I think, boy, that's just wrong. That's something where if we had socialized medicine in our country, the government would be reimbursing 40 or 50 bucks for it. But we don't have that. So yes, I do believe that any time a new treatment or technology comes along, people are excluded because someone wants to make a profit. So, if you think to yourselves, what could you do as Australians? Here's what I suggest. This is what I believe in America. What I believe is that people like us, autistic people, we need to first of all take charge of research. Think about this. If in this city you had a question that was pro of profound importance to the Jewish community, who do you think you'd ask? Do you think you'd ask the Anglican bishop or the Catholic bishop? Of course not. You would go to the Jewish leadership and you would ask. So why is it that people presume that they're going to decide what's right for us autistic people? It's time for us to take charge of our destinies and say autistic people are going to choose this. And we have this duty to recognize the great diversity of help that our community needs and we need to fight for that. And we need to fight for our right for choice. And we need to fight to make it accessible. The way we can make these things accessible is to use public money, government funding, to develop these new therapies. And when they are developed with government funding, they are in the public domain. And that means anyone can use them without royalty. It's really, really important, folks, that we fight not only to take charge of our destiny as an autistic tribe, but we fight to make the things that we develop available to all of us in our community. I really, really believe that, and I hope you'll support it. <laughs> we have questions over there? Oh, please, we folks? do. We have people queuing for questions down here. Hi, John. Thanks for coming to Australia. Well. <laughs> um, I'm, I want to ask, it's a question that's sort of coming from different angles based on being a parent of two autistic children. The older one has Asperger's. Um, you're very strong on the idea that children should not be treated with this therapy, but you're sort of basing that on the fact that you did what is 50-year-old and therefore had decades and decades of history with relationships and thoughts and all that sort of thing. Do you think if a child had it young enough that they wouldn't have all that history. Therefore, when they had the treatment, it wouldn't, be, wouldn't have such an emotional impact like what it had on you. And also, uh, my oldest child has Asperger's. My younger one is developmentally delayed with her autism. It's not Asperger's. Do you see any um, positives in a treatment like this for those autistic people? I think that um, brain stimulation 
and medication are heavy-duty treatments for autism, just as they're heavy-duty treatments for anything. And I think before you go to that kind of heavy stuff, I think that there are lighter things with less risk that would very likely do the job. Um, so, for example, in the United States, I have spoken out for the development of a program we call PEERS, P-E-E-R-S. Um, it was developed at UCLA, and uh, you can buy a PEER, you can go on any of your, your booksellers down here in Australia, and you can, you can look up PEERS, Autism Therapy, and you can buy the PEERS workbooks. PEERS is a therapy that helps young people make friends and connect with other people. So it addresses the heart of what I went into TMS for in a group talk therapy setting, which I think is inherently much safer. And any parent who was thinking of doing something to help her child connect with other people, I think the responsible thing would be try these new therapies like peers because they are very different from the traditional counseling that you might have gotten at your local therapist and they are more likely to be effective. And, and so I would advise you try something like that first. And I would never say to you that, well, you should never do something like TMS because I think it's going to be an individual decision. But I think that we have developed things like that. You know, I'd say the same thing. There are many other aspects, right? If we look at intestinal pain, you could go to a doctor and the doctor could provide you sort of heavy medications to try and change your gut, but you can also change your diet. And if you can change your diet, you can change your general fitness, and you can eliminate your GI pain, I think you're smarter to do that than to take prescription medication. So I would advise you to go, to go towards that goal in steps and just be cognizant of the fact that so often children like me and my son and others, we seem broken when we're little and we turn out to be stars when we're adults. You know, my son, when he was five years old, he was evaluated at one of the top autism clinics in the United States because he couldn't, re he couldn't read or do, he couldn't do any of the stuff he was supposed to be able to do. And they told me that he had a near normal level of intelligence. He had this mild intellectual disability and he might one day be able to have a normal life. And um, 10 years later, my son was uh, tested again after he had gotten raided by our Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms because he was experimenting with building explosives and setting them off in the backyard and he got <laughs> raided. And, um, and so those Harvard people, they found that my son had an IQ of over 140. So what happened? Did my son's IQ double in 10 years? Or did my son's disability fall away so that his IQ could be seen? And I guess I would say to you that when you're looking at your child, 10, 11, 12 years old, your child could be like my child. And maybe his brilliance has yet to shine through and all you see is the disability and don't be blinded to the future hope by that. So. <laughs> We'll flick down here, in the blue. Uh, hi, John. Your, uh, your journey was clearly a very uncomfortable one, but now you're one of the few people who knows two quite different mental states. Most of us don't. Most of us only know one mental state. So you're in a fairly unique position to advise neurotypicals of, of what it's like to be autistic. So what, what would you say to, to neurotypicals is if they are coming into contact with an autistic person, what advice would you give them in terms of how to, to, to deal with the strange reactions you might get from that autistic person? I wouldn't give them advice. I don't think that when we are 2% of the population and they are 98%, I don't think we can really be telling them what to do. I think that's the problem. We can have legislation 
that mandates equality, but if they don't like us when we don't behave the way they expect the first time we meet them, I don't think legislation's gonna change that. So I think what you have to ask yourself as an autistic person going out in the world, you have to say, I can connect with my tribe, I know my own kind, and I relate fine with them. Do I want to change myself to connect with somebody who's not in my tribe? And uh, do I want to act differently for that? Now some people would say, that's like fake and it's pretending and how could you say that? And no, I'm, I'm not telling you to be fake, I'm not telling you to be something you don't want to be. What if there's a girl you really want to get to know and you think she's just so cute and she's so smart and she's, she's everything that I could love if only I could be her friend and then how would I approach her? There's no, there's no fakeness in learning how to approach a person that you don't know to, to make a relationship. I mean, ultimately all of us want to connect with people to be successful, whether it's for gain in business or it's for, for love or for friendship or companionship. And, and I think that some people will say, my tribe's enough, I'll talk to other autistics, I won't talk to other people. And there's others that are gonna say, I wanna learn how to, how to change in a way to connect with anyone. It's an individual choice and I can't say what's right for you, but I can say that we can only change ourselves, we can't change others. We can make laws and we can change ourselves. And that's what I set out to do. Whether that's right for you or not, though, I would not presume to tell you. Over here. Hi, I'm studying to be a primary teacher, so I'm interested in how these issues play out in the classroom, because in Australia, we have a policy of integrating. Uh, and so you can have a range of, of neurodiverse students in a classroom of 30. But a lot of the conversation seems to be about potentially fixing not just autistic people, but anyone with a difference. And I, I accept what you were just saying about um, you know, neurotypicals and how they might be able to respond, but surely isn't part of my role as a teacher to also help all students accept any kind of difference in others? I think that your question is different from his question in a fundamental way, okay? because he comes to this as an adult, saying, what would I do as, as an adult? What you do, you come to this and you say, I'm a person who's gonna shape the thinking of children, and what should I do? And I think that answer is very different, because I think we know morally what's right. What you should say to the children in your care, you should say, all people are equal, we accept. British Aust Australian people, Aboriginal Australian people, we accept people of different races, we accept people of different faiths. I think it's your job to recognize as a teacher that some children will come from backgrounds where racism, discrimination, and hatred still live. And one of the goals, one of the great things we can hope for in building society is that our teachers will help children see a path out of hatred and marginalization and prejudice and discrimination. And I think that doesn't just apply to autistic people, it applies to all people. So I think that's really, really important. And I think that the extent to which you can teach children skills to make friends, like the peers program, I think you're doing a, a great piece of work if you do that. Now I used to think that we could put together these classes and we could do classes and things like peers for autistic kids. But since I started teaching at William and Mary, I realized that first of all, that is in itself discriminatory. If we have a class in behavior for autistic children, how's that different from having a class for black children or aboriginal children? It's saying, you don't know how to act, so we're gonna teach you how to act our way. And I think that's wrong. And I think when you consider it, wouldn't it be fair to say that almost every child in your school doesn't know how to act right? And, and so, 
So I think really, if we offer a program like Peers, it may be that some autistic children will get more benefit than other non-autistic children, but potentially every child in the school should have access to the program. When we look at special education, so many special education accommodations are just common sense, and every child would benefit from them. So when you ask what should you do as a teacher, I think you should work towards acceptance and equality and stamping out hatred and prejudice for all people, not just autistics. I, and I hope you'll be successful. And for those, for those educators in the audience, I cannot recommend enough, there's a Facebook group called Social Justice in Early Childhood that uh, runs a, a new service of incredible resources for looking at social justice issues in early childhood. Amazingly. Now, unfortunately, I think we have to... Um, we're on our last question. My, the uh, disability I live with is I am incredibly short-sighted and a 30 centimetre difference between myself and the clock uh, means that I, I have to keep peering. I'm sorry about this for anybody who thinks I'm being a bit wizened and well, mysterious. Take this fellow here. The other this side fellow here. here. You may be our last question, sir. <coughs> oh, that's an usher. Oh, yeah, I told okay. you. All right, so it's this one's our last question. Okay. Hi, John. I um, trust you won't judge me, this audience. <laughs> Hi, John. Thank Down you here. for your excellent, excellent talk um, and for talk, touching on uh, neurodiversity. Uh, my question is quite personal. I had a stroke about uh, five years ago, and uh, it's funny how you talk about the Broca's area because my hemorrhage actually um, occurred in that same spot. Uh, I have a, a golf ball size uh, hole in my head. They went down and they took it out. But that, what's really funny is, um, uh, despite the team, TMS, um, I guess, um, focusing the energy on there, because I don't have, I don't have the, the area uh, physically in my head anymore, it actually, I think, made me hypersensitive to emotion. So that's one part. And the fact that um, I've had uh, several different um, experimental therapies, I actually can't have TMS as such because I have um, had a few uh, seizures on the operating table. My question is, um, through your uh, experiences and um, a dark period of depression, um, for people who don't have teen or don't have the uh, ability to have PTMS or have that um, accessible, how can I improve my inabilities or disabilities um, that you can see, uh, especially in my hypersensitivity? Well, first of all. Um there have been actually a number of journal articles about people who have lost part or all of Broca's area, as you've described in yourself, and they still speak. And, um, and it calls into question how distributed the processing of speech is within our minds. And you may be a living example of that. And it's, I guess it shows that there's a great deal we don't know about the organization of the mind. Um, certainly, if you're a person who has had seizures already, you would not, at this moment, be eligible for TMS studies. But what's really interesting is that uh, some of the studies they're now doing, they're taking folks like you that have seizures, and they are putting them in, MR, in functional MRI scanners to see where activity happens. And they're walking a very dangerous line because they'll do something to induce a seizure while you're in the scanner in hopes that they can see where it starts in your head. And then what they'll do is they'll use TMS to suppress that area. And the idea is that the more they suppress the area, the less likely it is to go into instability. So if they could identify focal points of seizures within your brain, they might be able to suppress those areas and therefore cure you of those seizures. And, and you might be able to take part in studies like that. 
and I would encourage you to Google TMS epilepsy and see if you can find something like that being done in Australia. So then, when you ask what you could do for depression, if you can't do TMS for depression, and I assume you're already familiar with medication and you don't want to do that or it doesn't do enough, and, um, and I think that the thing that has helped the most in my family, um, my wife Mary Pat is tremendously benefited by meditation and yoga. Meditation and yoga is really, really powerful as a treatment for depression for some people. And, and I would urge you to, to think about that. Um, I, I think in general, um, Eastern thinkers have mastered some aspects of that that we in the West have never really gotten together. So that, that would be my best advice based on my life experience. Thank you. So. Now, I'm relatively assured by the blur in the corner that we have unfortunately run out of time. Can you all please give a huge round of applause to the fantastic well, John Elder Robson. Thank you. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.